You're listening to Uprooted. This is Josh. Just a brief note on today's program. Uh, the audio quality is somewhat diminished uh, due to a uh, challenging internet connection between Vancouver, British Columbia, where Sophia Murphy is based, and our offices here in Minneapolis. You'll also notice some background noise. Uh, this, of course, is the challenge of recording from offices during the middle of the day. So we apologize for the quality, but the content I'm sure you will find is ever stimulating. So on with the podcast. Welcome to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. The 11th Ministerial of the World Trade Organization begins in Buenos Aires, Argentina on December 10th, and there's already been some controversy around it. Uh, this podcast is going to focus on, start with talking about the, the basics of the World Trade Organization and how it works, and then talk more specifically about the upcoming ministerial. I'm joined by Sophia Murphy, who's a former staff member and current advisor to IATP uh, to talk about the WTO. So, Sophia, let's let's start with the 30,000-foot uh, view on the WTO. Give us just a, a little bit of the background of how it came into being and what its purpose is. I'm glad to do that. So, the WTO is the World Trade Organization. It comes into being in 1995, and it takes over from the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, GATT, that had been in place since the end of the Second World War. And it is the institution that's charged with overseeing multilateral trade agreements. Um, so those are the agreements that affect more or less every country. At this point, there are about 163 members to the World Trade Organization, and it covers more than 90% of world trade. I forget, might even be a higher percentage. So it's, it's most of the trade that's happening is subject to these rules, which are agreed, like a UN organization might, among all of the member states. And it's been in place now for over 20 years. And it has a few different pieces. One is to negotiate new agreements. Another is to monitor and track the agreements that are already in place. And it also has a legal dispute system. So if countries don't like what other countries are doing or think the rules are being violated, they can take their complaint to the World Trade Organization and um, there'll be a kind of court process to decide whether or not this is a valid claim and what should happen if the claim you know, succeeds. So those are some different um, parts uh, to the WTO as an institution. And um, what we're headed to in Buenos Aires is the ministerial conference. So it's sort of highest level of decision-making is among what many countries would call Minister of Trade, Minister of Commerce. In the United States, we have a, a, an appointed U.S. Trade Representative, USTR. Um, and those officials meet every two years, and they're meant to signal, they're both meant to finalize any agreements that may have been negotiated in the meantime. It's been quite a long time since the WTO had much to do on that front because the negotiations have not gone well. And they also are meant to provide an agenda for what the organization will work on in the next two years coming up. So, Sophia, can you explain a little bit how the negotiation process works? Is it something where every member has to agree to every part or can members sign on to specific chapters? 
Um, how, are, how, are, how are the agendas set and how are the agreements reached? So officially, um, and, and uh, you know, it's an important principle of action, things are decided by consensus. Um, there are plenty of examples where a country might dissent and it, you know, its dissent can go on record. It may not stop what's going forward if there's only one or two countries who object. But by and large, they try to move with everybody agreeing um, and silence is taken for assent. Um, and, and so technically every country has a vote if you, um, you know, however small or large they are. That's, that's one principle and an important principle. In reality, um, the politics, of course, are more difficult and not all countries are equal in terms of how much they depend. If, to take, for example, the United States, it is the most important trading partner of dozens of countries around the world, but its own important trading partners are, are it doesn't have one single dominant power with whom it trades. It has many. And in most of its bilateral relationships, it's the bigger, more powerful partner. And that, that kind of size matters in the multilateral system as well. So what tends to happen is smaller countries band together, look for common interests. And that happens even with middle powers like Australia and Canada, for example, on agriculture, they work in a group called the Cairns Group with developing countries as well, because they realize that they can't challenge the European Union or the United States, except as a larger group, where together they have enough market share, enough trade going on to, to make their demands um, of interest. Um, so there, there are a lot of, the WTO has been a controversial body since its inception. And even within IATP, we have disagreements about its uh, effectiveness and about its purpose and about what its purpose could be. Um, can you just talk a bit about uh, the controversy on both sides and uh, what kind of the pros and cons of the WTO are on just sort of a high level? Yeah, I think, so the World Trade Organization came into being in the mid 90s at a time where there was a very strong and fairly united front, especially among developed country governments that the way forward for the world was globalization through deep economic integration and a, a seeming willingness to sort of hand over national control to a, an international body. This is how it was projected. It's, of course, it's reality is never quite so, nothing like so dramatic. Um, and, and the promise was extended to developing countries that through this deep economic integration internationally, they were going to, to um, generate wealth and jobs and, and all the good things that they wanted for their countries as well. And a lot of the NGOs, a lot of the NGOs were skeptical. They had already seen some of what happened with deep trade integration. Developing countries had gone through 10 years of what was called structural adjustments, where they had had to reorient their economies to a much more external focus. And it wasn't all bad, of course, but a lot of it was, was, was very destructive of industry in those countries, jobs, um, income uh, generation, revenue generation for the government. Um, and of course, the terms of trade were very unfair. There, there was still, you know, the big economic trading powers had a lot of influence. And the World Trade Organization rules reflected that. They, they gave rich countries space to continue to do what they did that poor countries couldn't use because they didn't have the money or they didn't have already in place legislation that could precede a WTO commitment. For example, intellectual property rights, rich countries all had uh, patent protection places, things in place to work with, but 
many developing countries didn't. And so they were just sort of obliged to take on a WTO standard and, and that wasn't appropriate in many countries um, for their economies. So there's a lot of controversy at the outset and, um, and a split, honestly, in civil society about whether you then engage and try and change the way the WTO works or whether you reject the institution and say we don't want a multilateral trade body in such an unequal world. And I, I think that argument continues, the tension continues. By and large, IATP has been quite pragmatic about, you know, it's there and we can say something, do something, make a difference. And we have, I think, made a difference, engaging especially with developing country governments and, and helping to shape a lot of the fights that are uh, part of the negotiating proposals today, on, uh, especially on how developing countries can, can better support sustainable agriculture for themselves and food security for their people. So I want to um, I want to get to IATP's objectives for the ministerial because you're going. Um, but first, um, one of the big criticisms of the WTO and, um, you know, also of bilateral trade agreements is that they've really served to facilitate the objectives of multinational corporations above and beyond the objectives of individual countries. Um, can you talk a bit about how much influence multinational corporations have over the process and um, just sort of where the, where the World Trade Organization is at now as opposed to, let's say, in 1999 in the Battle of Seattle when, you know, the negotiations were effectively shut down by protests over that very concern? So, um, the, the WTO deals with international trade. The um, dominant actors, if you like, in that trade are sort of by definition multinational companies. Um, as a number of sectors have become more consolidated, this is really true in agriculture, agricultural inputs like seeds, and tractors, and fertilizer, and also in grain trading, which has never been competitive and is much less so now then you see the same companies are present in many, many, many countries and therefore part of many countries negotiating positions on trade and pushing not just at the World Trade Organization, which is a little bit the backstop and you could almost think of it like the constitutional framework for trade. And, and then within that, you get more, often more aggressive, certainly more in-depth agreements that arise that are bilateral or regional between different members and those are not part of the WTO but they they have to work within a WTO accepted framework and the transnationals are often actually more in those regional bilateral things pushing for something deeper the WTO they can't get a lot because you've got to get 160 countries to agree to the change and on the whole countries are by instinct more protectionist than they are liberalizers never mind all the rhetoric other countries want everyone else to liberalize, but not liberalize at home. Um, and, so, and so the influence of the transnationals is that they, they have for a long time kind of set the idea of what you should want. They, they define the should, the, the ambition, but they don't necessarily get what they want as an outcome. The, the two big exceptions have been on intellectual property, where a concerted push, especially by the pharmaceutical industry, really ratcheted up the protection afforded transnationals who are involved in, in, in um, medicine and drug uh, research. 
Um, and another area would be on services, where that's not been part of the trade system historically. It's not covered by the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. So they got this General Agreement on Trade and Services, which was quite weak in the initial uh, round that founded the WTO in the mid-90s, and they've been pushing ever since as a sector with the transnationals in the lead. But they've also often gone through the regional agreements, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, those other places where they see more scope to push their agenda. It's a little bit harder for them in the multilateral context. And in terms of formally, they don't have status formally. No non-governmental organization has any formal status. So unlike some parts of the United Nations, if you're not a government, you don't sit in the room um, while the talks are going on. So the ministerials are happen, happen every two years. And this, uh, this year's ministerial is in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Can you talk a bit about what's expected to happen uh, at the ministerial and what some of the hot topics are going in? Um, yeah, so, so I guess at the moment, <laughs> because the Trump administration has been so belligerent about not wanting to work in a multilateral way, but more in a bilateral way where the U.S. is sort of guaranteed its interest. You know, this isn't really um, politically possible, but the rhetoric makes it quite difficult. It's hard to know exactly what will happen. But the, the, the overriding thing going in is that many of the members of the World Trade Organization are anxious about what the U.S. might do. Um, the U.S is not really engaging in the negotiations. Um, and where it does, it's mostly complaining and looking for things to change, some of them very fundamental. So for example, it, it, it's now the Trump administration dislikes the way that disputes are heard. I mentioned the dispute settlement um, body as one of the pieces of the World Trade Organization. The US is refusing to, to appoint new justices to that system, which is effectively crippling the ability of the WTO to hear legal disputes. And they're kind of holding that hostage while they ask for changes because they don't want any kind of panel in place that they don't win. <laughs> Which of course mm. isn't really going to work if you have a court and a guaranteed outcome that's always in one country's favor. So, so that, that's very serious because the working of the organization depends on it having this legal um, capacity. Um, the U.S. has also just last week said it won't join a shared declaration normally out of a ministerial. You'd hope, the big hope would be for new agreements on issues. Nobody now hopes that for Buenos Aires. Secondly, you hope for some sort of ministerial declaration that at least says we've moved a bit on this and we expect to see the other issue, you know, dealt with in the next year. These statements start usually with a reaffirmation and a commitment to multilateral trade. The U.S. is not signing on for that at the moment. And it starts with a commitment to the development of poorer members so that, you know, that whatever the agreement is, it should be in the interest of the smaller, um, less rich countries of the world. The U.S., again, is not willing at this point to sign this kind of very, very general principled stand. So in terms of outcome for Buenos Aires, nobody really knows is the answer. There are plenty of substantive issues. There's conversations on electronic commerce conversations on the management of data, um, privacy, there's all of those issues to do with the knowledge economy. There's conversations on agriculture, 20 years on and still hard fought to do with public stockholding and food security programs, um, to do with whether or not you should be able to tax food that's destined for food aid. Um, 
there's this serious fishery subsidies, the, the continuing problem of, of, of rich countries subsidizing the destruction of ocean fisheries. So, so a number of important issues that could be dealt with that have been discussed at length in Geneva, where the World Trade Organization is headquartered, but where we just don't know if ministers will be able to bring their attention to bear unless there's some more underlying commitment from the U.S. to be a, a constructive, uh, to engage constructively. So you'll be there at the ministerial and uh, IATP has a couple of objectives uh, to be disseminating information to the, the delegates and the negotiators. Um, what is our message going in and what are you going to be doing at the round? So the, the big message, and there's a reason for going, is partly to say, you know, we need multilateral conversations about this. IATP has long time been a critic of many of the rules that are in place at the WTO, but we are committed to this being an international multilateral conversation and um, committed to many of the sort of um, written objectives of the WTO, if not the practiced objectives around space for developing countries and uh, ensuring that the outcomes are fair for all. So, so I guess you could say on principle, we think the WTO matters, um, even if we are critical as much of its function and, and uh, substance. Um, more specifically, IACP has tracked um, the dumping of commodities produced in the United States and sold on international markets for probably 25 to 30 years now, from, since before the WTO was created. And those dumping numbers, we look at five agricultural commodities, wheat, cotton, rice, uh, corn, and soy. And we, we look at what it costs to get it to the farm gate in the US and then what it's sold for in the international market and show the discrepancy in those prices. So we're still very concerned that that issue has not been resolved and continues to plague commodity markets, destabilizing them and reducing prices for poorer farmers in other countries. And, and we just, to jump in, just to jump in real quick and, and clarify what we're talking about here, we're talking about the U.S. selling uh, commodities on the export market, or U.S. companies selling commodities on the export market. It lets them the cost of production, which is ultimately driving farmers out of business in those countries. Yes, but it, um, it, it makes it, yes. That it, it drives farmers out of business. It, it, it undervalues also what, what it actually costs to produce. It has environmental effects, socioeconomic effects. Um, and IATP analysis looks at why that happens in the U.S. and what, the, what, what it leads to, but also in the WTO context, the fact that it makes other farmers and other traders elsewhere uncompetitive. Continue on with our further objectives. Yeah. Um, and I'm sorry because it's long. Okay, so specifically okay. we're looking at cotton because cotton is one of the sharpest, you know, it, it is an issue on the agenda. Four of the world's poorest countries, Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, Chad, and Mali, have for 15 years been trying to get the United States to change its cotton subsidy program to cease selling its cotton on world markets at less than cost of production prices. That has yet to happen. The U.S. continues to spend a great deal of money on its cotton farmers to the detriment of some of the world's poorest people. So we will have a new analysis on cotton uh, available at the ministerial. And then just two more big issues for us. One is to bring together the work we do on climate change, the need for agriculture to 
both adapt but also to uh, change how agriculture is performed so that it no longer contributes as much as it does. Different estimates suggest agriculture is responsible for as much as a third of greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And a lot of that emission comes from the type of industrial agriculture that's common in the US and funded by US investments in other countries. So we want to try and bring that conversation to the trade organization to say the trade organization has to take some responsibility for distinguishing among products that are produced in climate responsible ways and those that are not. And finally, interested in stability. So I think one of the big roles the WTO could play is in creating a more stable environment, especially for the trade of staple food crops. And that again, links back to dumping that we shouldn't destabilize international markets with poor domestic policy. And it also links to food stocks and other ways in which you try and have some risk insurance built into the system so that if international markets fail, people don't go hungry. Now, there's already controversy around this round because uh, the, the WTO and the Argentine government have revoked credentials for uh, 63 civil society experts. Um, can you explain that situation and what's being done about it right now? Yeah, it's, uh, it's extraordinary, really. For the first time ever, on a large scale, the Argentine government has gone to the World Trade Organization Secretariat and said, although you have, as an international organization, um, have a formal process for, for people, for individuals and organizations to be accredited to the meeting, we have chosen this group of organizations that affects about 63 people, as you say, we don't want them to have a badge to come in. So even though these people have met all of the WTO's criteria, as host government, we want you to take their badge away. And our understanding is that this caused a furore. It should have caused a huge furore. But eventually, Argentina has stuck to its guns that as the host government, it has the right at the, at the end on security grounds to say who does and doesn't get in. And um, these organizations affected received letters last week from the WTO, not from Argentina, but from the Secretariat of the WTO to say, you will no longer have a badge. We're very sorry. We can't tell you why. We don't know why. Um, and we're not sure whether or not you'll be able to get into the country. Um, in the time since, there's been a lot of press. Um, ICP has a, another has a piece up today about this. Um, but there's been a lot of press in the, in the mainstream media as well. No one has given a good reason. Uh, no one is really clear what Argentina will do at the border, whether this is just about access to a conference center or also access to the country. We understand from one organization based in Brazil that the uh, embassy in Buenos Aires has been able to get this group, uh, this organization back on a list, but nobody else has news to that effect. And so they will go to Argentina, probably not allowed to go into the conference center and perhaps not allowed into the country at all. And um, the reason it's controversial is because of course, this is entirely arbitrary. Um, the Argentine government has decided with no grounds and no evidence, and in fact, not even any formal uh, complaint, who they think might be a problem and who not. And if you look at the list, there's no rhyme or reason to it, actually. Even if you said, we don't want to hear critical voices, there's lots of critical voices still coming. Um, and, and none of the people involved have any history of violence or, or you know, uh, engagement in anything except public debate. Um, definitely critics of the WTO, most of them, although not all, 
but um, not but not in other ways, only engaging in terms of debate rather than uh, direct action or anything else. So between the crackdown in civil society and the Trump administration's isolationism, it seems like the, the World Trade Organization could be on the path to becoming an obsolete body. Um, what needs to happen in order to reverse that course and actually make the WTO an organization that's working on behalf of the world's people in a productive way? Well, I mean, it will only work with the political engagement of the membership. And I, I think that those members, almost all of them, have a very strong interest in a strong multilateral system within which to decide and, and refine their trade policy. And I think that's clear to most of them. You know, if you wanted to look at where the world's sort of knowledge, know-how, skills in trade diplomacy are concentrated, they're concentrated in Geneva. Not true for the United States, probably not true for Europe, but it's true for almost all of the, um, the rest of the countries in the world. But unless they have just one big trade partner, so some, some of the countries that deal mostly with India or Brazil or, you know, in North America with the U.S., but for, for the most part, countries are interested in a multilateral system and, if, and, and their engagement to trade means they want to get those rules right so that then they can develop bilateral and, and, and other relationships on that basis. And I don't think it's an accident that there was a huge resurgence in bilateral negotiations once the WTO was established and this framework was extended to many more countries. It, it gives you a basis on which to work. You know, NGOs are critical of that basis. We'd like to see other objectives included, not just trade liberalization for its own sake. But there's no denying that that conversation for us is best had at the multilateral level. And I think a lot of countries recognize that. If you talk to the diplomats, they see it. Um, now, I think the other thing that's true is the U.S. has been very dominant since the end of the Second World War in, international in the international economy, and that role is fading, and that adjustment is hard. So politically, it's hard. Um, economically, it's hard. The shift is not fun, and, um, and the shift hasn't been very well managed. The U.S., you know, this is a sort of short-term, medium-term, long-term perspective, the, the U.S. finds it hard in the short term to say to everyone, you, we can't just call the shots here anymore. And I don't know, someone like Trump, you, you know, doesn't really understand trade. So it's even harder to have the conversation because the, there's no sense of what the strategy would be given his really quite, um, you know, ignorant views on how trade works. But, but if you had someone, if you had an administration that was, um, clearer on what trade was about, the U.S. would have a really strong interest in, in being an, an active and engaged and constructive part of the multilateral conversation because it's going to be less and less able to fall back on its bilateral clout as other economies, obviously China, but, but other countries too as those countries emerge. For example, in agriculture, Brazil in the last 20 years has come to produce as much if not more of the international soy and corn available internationally, so, sorry, those crops available internationally, they now produce as much as the U.S., where they used to produce a tenth or, or, or a fifth of what the U.S. did. So, so this, this shifting pattern, this shifting world is one in which the U.S. actually will be best served in a multilateral conversation, but it's going to have to take quite a political shift to embrace that as an opportunity rather than to see it as a threat.
Well, Sophia, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Josh. You've been listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more information on what you heard on today's show, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org, where you can read our papers on cotton dumping and on public food stocks. Thanks for listening.